When you think of the ideal company, what comes to mind? Is it a Fortune 500 firm? Or is it a local company in your town that you've known all your life? Is it a tech company paving the way for new economies? Or is it a firm routed in disruption? How about a firm that puts people first? For many years, we've known to get the best out of someone, we need to get them to believe in the task that they're going to be doing. Eisenhower even said that leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he wants to do it. That was in the 40s or in the 50s he said that. Now that same person is also cited with another great quote. Let me read it to you. We the people elect leaders not to rule but to serve. Let me repeat that again. We the people elect leaders not to rule but to serve. Let's dwell on that for a bit. Not to rule, but to serve. And combine that with the art of getting a team to get a goal done. That takes more than just great leaders. You also need a human-centric culture. I'm Sean Smith, and this is the Vosman Leadership Podcast. My guests today have been helping organizations become more human-centric through sustainable transformation. Today, you'll be hearing from Caroline Sabney and Anne Purtis from the Pillars in Montreal. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Sean, what the hell is a human-centric culture? And that is a great question. Human-centric cultures are focused on their people. They want to make sure that every person that's working there is able to reach their full potential. As Jim Collins said it, having the right people in the right seats on the bus. The information in this episode is full of great suggestions and tools to get you on that path. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did re-listening to it as when we recorded this for the first time was in March of 2019. If you liked the episode that you heard today and to get the latest information on our upcoming recordings, please support us by becoming a patron on our Patreon page. So welcome. Today I'm sitting down with the Pillars, with Anne Purtis, and with Caroline Sabney. Hello. Hi. So how do you define a human-centric culture? So my definition would be uh, an organization who thinks about how they impact not only the people who work within the organization, but also the systems around them. So what's our imprint? What's our footprint? How do we impact the world around us? What are the practices we put in place? We've come from a time where everything was very profit-driven and people made a lot of decisions strictly based on the fact that, you know, it had to impact the bottom line, it had to be good for the bottom line. And I believe that we're in a sort of a shift of consciousness where we're starting to consider the fact that the human has to be at the center of decisions and we have to start thinking about how are the organization's policies, procedures, and whatnot, really helping people to grow, to thrive, to be their best selves, which will, of course, in turn, impact profit. 
But the leading variable shouldn't be how do we make profit. The leading variable should be how do we help humans be better, to thrive, to feel purposeful, knowing that when we care and pay attention to humans, profit will follow. So human-centric organizations don't think of profit at any cost. They really look at it as an output of how they've practiced things from a more ethical perspective, how they've created conditions that allow for people to really thrive, not just because it's good for business, but also because it's good for them as human beings. So how does somebody go really about creating one of these cultures? Well, that's a really interesting question because every company is different. You have different individuals, different behaviors uh, within an organization. And oftentimes what we're seeing is uh, a combination of mergers, acquisitions. So you've got various uh, cultures within the same company. So what do you do? Um, you've got all these great individuals. You've got a great company. You've got a great product, potentially. So what do you do? Uh, we're very much into involving people from the get-go, mm -hmm. involving everyone to define what that culture looks like. Mm -hmm. So... In involving people, and it's not just a, um, at the top of the organization. I mean, Zappos is a great example. Uh, they did a values exercise, and it took them a year to define what their values are and what that meant. Now, that's maybe at an extreme because of all their employees got involved in the surveys, et cetera. But I think that can be done where there's a good representation. And so you have a voice. Each person has a voice, a say of what's it like to be here. You know, I think it's really important. Uh, a lot of times, I, I agree with you, I think a lot of businesses forget that it's not just happening always at the executive board in the boardroom. So from your experiences, how important is it to really engage the employees in terms of creating these types of transformations? Because it's not just a simple of, hey, well, the CEO said it's happening, so it's got to happen, right? So that, for me, is what is at the center of human-centric organizations, is that we understand that humans are very powerful, that people have a lot of collective intelligence, collective wisdom, and so a human-centric organization will not seat power strictly with executives or titled leaders. They will create processes that are inclusive, mm -hmm. and that's what partly makes them human, is that nothing's dictated, nothing's told or being sold from the top down, which is caused a lot of disengagement in organizations. We keep hearing the stats. The stats are telling us time and time again, engagement levels are at all-time lows. They haven't, I don't think, hit past a 20% mark, and that's globally. So human-centric organizations understand that co-creation is really not just good for business, it's good for people in the sense that we all look for purpose and mastery in our lives, and that includes our workplaces. So for me to show up and be told what to do assumes that I'm not intelligent enough to right. know what to do or how to do it. So it, it demeans people. It takes away autonomy. So when you create processes that are inclusive, not only does the organization thrive because it draws out the best solutions possible, it also helps people feel at their best because you're tapping into their potential. So when we create inclusive processes, 
it really is a win for everybody. Mm. And that's meaning and assuming that leaders are letting go of ego and believing that only they hold an answer or that they should be creating culture or defining values. Reality is, why are they the smartest person in the room? Or why would you believe you're the smartest person in the room? Right. <laughs> so, we, so, so, so you guys were talking about that Apple took about a year to create something Zappos. similar to Zappos. Zappos, excuse me. So what is usually around the timeline for, let's say, a medium-sized enterprise to try to uh, do this? It really depends. There's not one answer to that. Right. Um, it really depends on the, the method. It depends on, to Carolyn's point, it really depends on is, is the top level really um, invested in this? And what I mean by that is, yes, I want everybody be, to be involved, but at the end of the day, no, I don't like those values. I want these values. Mm -hmm. So we start with the top. We have conversations. We have one-on-one -on -one, uh, conversations to really, uh, you know, with, with questions that we design purposefully to really gather that intake of, okay, what's really going on at that high level? And what is, what is the intent? If the intent is good, and yes, we, we definitely believe that everyone or, you know, a large portion of our, uh, our, our people need to be involved, that's great. That's super. And so sometimes it's a, also a part education piece of, well, they've already always done it this way. And all of a sudden, oh, this is new. This is, we've never done that before. So again, it's, it's not an overnight shift, mm -hmm. but we involve people throughout the organization and those voices. And frankly, when we, you know, we bring back these results of all these ideas, right. uh, people are amazed. I mean, the, the titled ones at the top of the, of the food chain, mm -hmm. Wow, we never thought of doing this. We never thought of involving people. It's, you know, stood right. instead of the top down. And frankly, right now, a lot of these flat organizations or matrix or or what have you, and it's hard on some of these larger egos because, well, I'm supposed to be the smartest one in 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 the company. But you know what? <laughs> that yeah. doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And people are not going to stick around being told what to do on a daily basis. And and that's part of, you know, the retention strategies that is all involved with this. You know, you bring up a really good point. Uh, you know, I love the fact that there's an, uh, there's an assessment that you guys do uh, eliciting feedback even from the front line all the way up to the top of the uh, food chain, pyramid, matrix, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure in 20 years from now, we'll be using another term. Um, I'm wondering though, you know, what, what would be like the ideal organization, you know, there's gotta be some sort of like aha moment that they have to have in terms of even engaging or else, you know, it, it, it's like the old IBM probably wouldn't be like from the 1950s wouldn't be the ideal candidate I'm assuming. Right. So an ideal candidate is someone in a leadership capacity who themselves has probably had a personal revelation. Mm. Because no change happens without a personal transformation. I mean, that yeah. I think has become so clear in, right. in the work that we do. When leaders start to understand that nothing evolves if we don't evolve, then that's the aha moment. We've been involved in many so-called transformations or culture change kind of initiatives where leaders wanted everyone else to change but weren't ready to lift 
their sleeves and to really roll up and, and to take some of that introspection for themselves. That, from my opinion, is always a failure. It's almost like uh, don't do what daddy does, right? Right, yeah. right. And don't put me to the test, you know. Don't ask me to, to do that, that heavy lifting. So yeah. the aha moment has to come in that moment of looking in the mirror and asking yourself, am I worthy of having anyone follow me? Am I worthy to lead this organization? Um, and these are the questions that we're starting to be even more comfortable to ask people. There was a time when everyone shied away from these questions because they were the soft questions, right? People were more comfortable asking the questions about how this would be good for business, how it would help your bottom line, how it would increase your sales. Now we have to ask different questions to bring the aha moment. What's your legacy? Is this a legacy you want? Will you be satisfied if tomorrow you leave knowing that this is what you've left? That language is becoming more permitted, if you will. And part of it is because we're taking permission. We're allowing ourselves to ask it. We want to create an aha moment, not based on, oh, if I do this, it'll bring more profit, but based on if I do this, it'll help in my own personal satisfaction as a person, as a leader, and I will help others find their own purpose, find their legacy. So, you know, we're talking a lot about wellness. We're talking a lot about uh, self-introspection, I think Mm -hmm. self-awareness. And I think that these things are a lot more than just buzzwords that we're hearing, right? It's something that, you know, many people, many cultures have kind of done, and it's great to see that it's now entering into a corporate type of a setting. You guys work with a lot of different companies and you've seen people that have a, adopted it and people who haven't adopted it. You know, every culture will be different, but have you, like the benefits, I guess the the employee sorry, the employee satisfaction scores in, in one culture versus another has got to be quite different, right? When when you have a leader that's, you know what, it's not all about me. It's about how, how, are, my, uh, how are my followers, how are my employees, how are they being better served, how are my customers being better served versus... What's the margin today? Yeah. Right? Are we actually uh, benchmarking to to some sort of EBIT? It's interesting because you're absolutely right. And and we're educating and helping them see this, but it, it has to come from them. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to say, oh, you need to change. Well, who are you to tell me what I should be, what I should be doing? Right. So there's that aspect of it, absolutely. And whether it's a self-reflection piece, whether it's going through a development, uh, coaching, a lot of times it's in a coaching aspect where, oh my gosh, I didn't realize. Um, or the, the typical 360 assessment of which can be very detrimental if you just start with that. But if you start easy with different aspects and get that feedback, uh, how are you showing up? Are you inspiring to people? Uh, are you, uh, making it, you know, that everyone has a voice or no, go through the 10 different layers to get a signature for a $50 widget is a a bit ridiculous. So it's, it's really looking at yourself, yourselves at at that level. And just as an example, we're going through, um, we do this often, you mentioned the, the assessment piece of going around and looking at the culture. And it's interesting how we always present it first to, to, to the sponsor and looking at, hmm, wow, I'm not surprised. Wow, this is good. We're doing this well. And I'm not surprised in the areas that we're not doing so well. Okay. 
But then it's the next phrase that really is a tell. Well, what are we going to do about this? Mm -hmm. And is it a the ruler on the, the fingers type of comment? Or is it, wow, we need to we need to do something different. We need to be different because guess what? Right now, uh, attracting and retaining top talent is is very much a challenge. Uh, we were at a breakfast recently. The top economic the uh, the economist for the BDC, uh, Pierre Cléhou, was very clear. This penurie de main d'oeuvre, so the lack of talent. Uh, in Canada, specifically in Quebec, he was saying it's at least another 10 years. Wow. So it, no more will you hear, oh, he doesn't do or she doesn't do. I'm going to find another one. Guess what? Um, with the rate my employer and Glassdoor, no, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So why not work with your folks? Why not look at what are the what are the qualities? What are the things we do well? And let's work together on making this such a human-centric, an environment where you're as happy coming in Monday morning as leaving Friday afternoon. You know, what's really interesting is, um, you know, I think think we're all inherently, as humans, afraid of feedback because it could be negative. And what is that going to do to my ego? And, oh, my God, I'm uh, I'm not as good as everybody thinks I am, right? They're all going to find out I'm a a fraud, fraud, right? And so... I, I really do commend people that say, please do tell me. Because a lot of times I've had people, well, tell me how I'm doing. And you really tell them and they and you just see them like they weren't prepared. They're hoping you're just going to say, oh, no, you're such a great person. Don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. But instead, no, you don't. You keep on screwing up. You never get things done on time. You know, you keep on telling me I have to do this, this and this and this is ineffective. So, so do you guys find that a lot of times where, you know, you have this guy who says, no, 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 I'm, I'm very awakened in terms of who I am. I don't have any blind spots anymore. And then you tell me, well, here's what your people are saying. Who are they? <laughs> I want to know who you're talking to. The second someone says they don't have any blind spots is a, is a signal that they've got blind spots. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have so, no insecurities. Yeah, okay, right, really. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, there's, there's a whole element of humility and leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question is, how much humility is, is enough humility? And I, I've always found that a bit of an odd question because that's like saying, well, how much self-esteem is too much self-esteem? So, you know, humility shouldn't be something that people look to just kind of put on like a mask. It's either you have humility or you don't. And humility assumes you know that there's always something that you can do different, better. Um, you know, again, if you believe that we will never fully self-actualize, it's that we are continual works in progress. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were asking earlier, are organizations who are more human-centric showing better results than those who aren't? Well, you would see it in engagement surveys, for example, you know, the famous net promoter score. Mm -hmm. The net promoter score is that factor that says, would you recommend this organization to your friends, family, and colleague. And unfortunately, a lot of people are designing to the, call it NPS. You should not be designing your culture strictly to get some kind of gold star on your report card, right? Because those are temporary fixes, meaning that it's like teachers teaching to the test, you might get kids to pass the test and do well on the test, but what did they learn? 
So what would right? be the measure that you would kind of look towards then? If somebody was looking at yeah. how do I progressively get better? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I'm not saying you shouldn't use those things, yeah. but I think that those are just one mark or one indicator that you might use in your organization. Oh, that's interesting. Some of the best indicators is, you know what? Go talk to people. Mm-hmm. In informal kind of capacities, not in performance review type of situations, but leaders who are connected, and I mean authentically connected, yep. will get feedback in real time, not once a year in engagement surveys or twice a year. When in, it's too in, late, right? exactly. Yeah. So you really want to know what's going on? Have authentic conversations. Those will be your benchmarks. Because hallways, right? if you are authentic, asking people, how are you? How's it going? How can I serve you? What's getting in your way? De facto, your engagement scores will go up. De facto, your net promoter score will go up because people will know you're genuine versus that program that you ran once a year of, you know, the big recognition. Everyone gets on a stage somewhere. Bravo, bravo. You get the trip to Mexico. And that's a bit of smoke and mirrors. So, again, I wouldn't just use indicators on engagement surveys. Are people saying good things about you on some of these social media platforms? Mm -hmm. Is your retention good? Do people tap into discretionary effort? And what that means is if you notice that people walk in exactly at a certain time and leave exactly at a certain time, they are not going to give you a second more because that is what the contract states. I work nine to five. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that people should come in earlier or should leave later or that they should work extended hours. But naturally, what you often see happen is people do it with joy because they feel they're given something that when it's needed, when something is, is urgent or whatever, they don't look at the clock. They don't need to count down the minutes till five o'clock or fourth or whatever. So those are the indicators in your culture I would I would happy. even go yeah. further in the uh, don't call it feedback mm. because feedback people get scared of that word right but to Carolyn's oh, point oh by the way I, apparently I, I've been hearing that a lot I use a lot of terms that people are scared of like team building and yeah. uh, <laughs> and and, and uh, accountability apparently is a really bad word uh, for some people look please go on <laughs> but that you know it used to be to Carolyn's you know that once a year the performance evaluation. And maybe you need to do something like that for bonuses and, and salary raises. Okay, so that's once a year. Put that aside. But what's really important is asking those questions frequently. Is it once a week? Is it what whatever it is? Is it once a month? Once a but it should be a, a very natural conversation. Mm-hmm. It should be Sean today. You know, uh, I, I see that uh, you're a bit stressed today. What can I do as your leader? in that servant way, I'm there to serve you. How can I help you? I know that the deadline's coming. Is there anything I can do? Is there Mm -hmm. something I can do? Can we put more resources on it? How are you doing? So that it's not, oh my gosh, my boss is coming to see me. He's going to give me, you know what, because I'm not going to make the deadline. So it's a whole shift. It's a whole mindset. Uh, How can we help you get to? And, you know, yes, you have objectives. Yes, you have things to... But how can we help you get to them? And it's not just on a performance base. It's also about a career aspiration base. Uh, a lot of companies are now into projects. So, Sean, you're, you're winding up on this project. You've done a great job. What are other things in the organization you'd like to be involved in? 
Mm-hmm. How often do we ask these questions? How often do we ask, you know, do, do you want to be the next VP? Do you want to laterally move? Do you want to set up your own project? How often are we asking those questions versus what are your numbers today? Where are you going with those numbers? And, you know, yes, there's a place for that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But you need to do that at every conversation you have. You know, I think to your point, um, you know, I, I hear back from a lot of people, even my own experience, I get asked that question, and a lot of people do too, at the interview, and never get asked it again. Where do you see yourself in five mm, years? Oh, right? Where, yeah. where do you see yourself in your organization? Where's that? And to your point, where's that question again? Because every other thing <laughs> after that is, so what's your targets? What are your numbers? Are you meeting them? Are you exceeding them? And it's like, am I ever going to advance if I am or if I'm not right. meeting these these benchmarks? Yeah. Right? So the human-centric organization would have processes in place to ensure that that doesn't get lost. And that would be the difference between a human-centric culture and one that's more, let's say, profit-driven or number-centric, mm-hmm. you know, because if we had to compare, you know, the two polarities might be human-centric and one might be number-centric. So in the human-centric organization, we ask ourselves, what are the systems or processes we need to put in place to help people flourish? So that might mean that we initially have to formalize it because it's not natural for us, so that we may have to formalize what we call career development conversations, Mm. or create what we call professional development plans or succession plans. And in some organizations, they're there, but they're never filled in because no one actually believes in them because they're not operating from human-centric principles. They're operating more from, again, number-centric. Right. In truly human-centric organizations, that becomes just part of who you are. You don't ask it just as a rote or mechanistic function to fill in a form you ask it because you care right so when we're working with organizations one of the things we might do is kind of audit and that's a strong word but to look at well what processes or systems actually support you saying you're human centric right you know to add to this how often you know we look at oh we want you to collaborate more Mm. we want to be better at teamwork and then you look at, well, how are you going to evaluate my performance? If we go down the, the performance route going, uh, my, t- my objectives, me, 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 me. Well, what about the half of my time being involved with others in the team and, and building something, not being recognized? So on the one hand, we want to be more team-oriented, but on the other hand, we're not recognizing it. We are not encouraging it. So, you know, sometimes the intent could be good, but by the time the systems get there to, oh, ask people, mm-hmm. again, they have a voice. And sometimes it's so basic. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Why don't we change it? So depending on the size of the company, it could be rather quick, or it could take a couple of years sometimes in the larger ones. One of the things I found, uh, you know, I, I, when I first built my first engineering services company with very little money, uh, because it was my own, uh, one thing I really learned really fast is that people won't stay if I'm giving them a big paycheck, right? But they'll mm-hmm. stay if they feel like they're being heard and listened to and that bringing in their ideas, right? And that they have a collaborative sense in terms of they're helping to build a company more than just the bottom line. And I know that, uh, and I learned that listening as a leader 
walk in the hallways is, is probably the key thing that I can do is just walk and listen. And that means not talking, but listening <laughs> and just what are they talking about? What are like the water cooler, right? Mm-hmm. What are they saying in the break room? What awesome. are they really concerned about? And I use this sometimes in interviews or when I'm assessing a new client. It's so what are your executives talking about more often? What are they really focused on? Because right. if you're talking about bottom lines, then I get a better idea. Okay, I see where you're coming from. Because I've worked with organizations that have said, we're all about open transparency, this value, this value, this value. And you know more than one VP can actually recite that thing. But when you get into the boardroom, we're all going to make a million dollars one day. We just need to make sure that our EBIT and our EBIT are at these percentage points. And we're making sure we're getting this and this. And I just sit there like, this isn't the marketing that you told me before, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, and like to your point, you were talking about, um, you know, the one time a year where you get to go to a trip to Mexico. I've been in some of those things. And I can tell you, if you're not the one that's winning the trip to go to Mexico, you're like, yay, <laughs> bravo. Yeah. This is wonderful. It's not me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's a culture that perpetuates competition also, yeah. right? Because what we're saying is only one star or a few stars can go on the, the cruise or, or the trip, which in and of itself breeds a competitive environment. Now, I guess we can argue that compa- competition in and of itself isn't always a bad thing. It depends on the, how it's being used yeah. and to what end. Is it really to create division between or is it to help um, challenge people to think differently or to up their own game or, you know, so competition, I, I wouldn't want to vilify the word. I think it just has become used in a negative connotation in organizations. So I know like at Apple, when they were first starting out, they had their hardware and their software team competing on terms of, hey, so who can get this done faster? Mm-hmm. They did that really well. And that's how they were able to uh, get to where they are. Where they used that competition in a poor manner, where they thought they were doing it right, was the Lisa 2 versus another platform that Wozniak was doing and never got to see the day of light. And it's essentially that one team was sabotaging the other teams right. and making them dumb because it was the competition. It has to be me. Yes. Right. Yes. And so, yeah, I agree with you. When it's done correctly, yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah. But, it, but there's that thin line. Yeah. That if you cross it, it just goes awry. And before you were talking about, you know, people watching the clocks and coming in at nine mm-hmm. to five. Mm-hmm. I remember working with the, with the military in Canada. And one, the first day I was walking in, in, the, um, in the office, everybody had a clock that was counting down. Oh, jeez. And I remember watching this, and I was just asking the, uh, the major, I said, what's up? Every desk had a clock that was counting down. And I said, what's up with the clocks? And the major told me, he says, oh, that's when they're going to retire. <gasps> wow. So, and he, they had it right on top of their monitors where they get to see no. how many more days, minutes, no. hours that, that they had left. But that was what it was. And, and this is where competition is a, non, is a non-starter, right? It's the military. It's hierarchical. You come in, you do your job, you leave, you spend more time. Great, thanks. You didn't have to. How sad is that? Isn't it, though, eh? Because it used to be it was the calendar, right? And you put the X's on the calendar, and then this year's done. And I've got Digital three technology. more years, ten more years. <laughs> so now it's... So imagine just on your psyche, coming yeah. in in the morning and sitting at your desk. What are you seeing first? Oh my gosh, I still have 10 years to go. Whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And to me, how how defeating of a, a you walk in and it's like, "Oh gosh, and I'm going to do this." And then 
as opposed take away that clock and oh, yeah. what do you want it to look like when you come in in the military or not because they've done the marines have done a, quite a few things down in the states and so, some good things and I mean, i've i've heard things like the officers eat you know last and and you know the the enlisted men or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call them. so there's a lot of things you can do hide that even if it's one person doing it just hide it and yeah. and it, it it could catch on and go you know what how can we make this a better place that we come in? We've got 10 years left. Let's make the most out of these 10 years. So that was actually a gift that somebody gave us like a Christmas present for that, for the, for, for that group. And I thought the same thing. I'm like, God, if I had that, I would just be like, oh, I got that many more years left. <laughs> I got to yeah. leave. <laughs> you yeah. know, like think about yeah. that 20 years at this desk. Oh my God. That is just horrifying. But I, you know, I love that you brought up about the Marines because there's that book, Leaders Eat Last. Mm. You know, and I, and I, and I agree it's first one's in, first one's out, right? Or sorry, first one's in, last one's out, excuse me. But it's uh, it's very indicative in terms of making sure everybody else has, then I'm going to take care of myself yeah. afterwards. Yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that, you know? Well, it's the basis of servant leadership, which, um, you know, I think is catching fire and is starting to gain some credence. But according to a lot of uh, the research and, and what's, Noted out there, a very small portion of leaders actually are servant leaders. So what is that percentage? Because I know that we talked about, and I would love to get into that more in terms of what is a servant leader. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very important mm-hmm. topic mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. to learn to understand what the difference yeah. is. But what is the percentage? So according to what I've seen, read, heard, it's only about 3 to 5%. Because servant leadership is something that I think we've kind of confused Mm -hmm. in terms of terminology with other language like transformational leaders. And in its essence, a servant leader will put the person's need before the organization. So it really is, how can I help you versus how can I help the organization reach its goals? The next parameter would be what we call a transformational leader, which we often interchange the terms, but they're actually quite different. Transformational leader also has concern and care for people, but has a primary spot, the objectives of the organization. So the transformational leader is thinking, how can I help people, but to reach the organization's goals? The servant leader thinks, How can I help you reach your personal goals? How can I help you be your best self? Knowing that, yes, there will be a trickle into the organization. So I think there's a misperception that servant leaders don't care about organizational results, which is not true. They just come at it very differently. That is why it's such a small portion. Because most leaders think about how we've been trained around leadership, how even leadership schools, if you will, still train. It's to think about very short-term results, quarterly profit, quarterly results, Mm -hmm. price per share. So those are the barometers we've been taught to look at. We haven't been taught to look at how fulfilled someone is, how gratified somebody is in their work how they've met their higher purpose. So these are different barometers now, and servant leaders operate from those barometers. That's why it's a whole shift in mindset. It's a different language of leadership. And imagine, sorry, but imagine that, to follow up on that, if, you know, the old adage, if your employees are happy, your clients are going to be happy. Mm -hmm. 
It is so true. If you are fulfilled, you're coming in, you've got autonomy, you're doing the mastery, and you are happy to be here, and you're being fulfilled. Imagine how you are going to communicate with a prospective client, another employee, a client, a much probably better motivated state than being in front of that computer with the days, minutes, whatever, (laughs) trickling down. Right. No, it's, you know, it's a very interesting um, uh, topic because there is, I know recently there's a lot more research that's coming out about servitude and leadership. And I remember uh, about a year or so ago, people were saying, well, that's a weak way of leading, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm the leader. And Mm -hmm. and there's still like that pyramid scheme type of thing. Well, I'm at the top. It's mine. It's me. And, um, you know, it's strange on how people don't say, well, you know, well, so did you build all the software? Did you build this and and get this? No, it was your team. It was the people that chose to follow you, right? And you as a leader helped take down the barriers and you should be asking, how can I get it done? Have you guys seen where people don't really kind of subscribe to being like, so why don't you meet this target versus saying, well, how can I help you meet the target? So have we seen that they're, sorry, still operating from? Yeah, so I, I think with servitude leadership, it's how can I help you meet yes. your, your goal that we've uh, agreed to versus why haven't you, right? Mm-hmm. Is that shift? So the servant leader would actually also be asking, what do you need, period? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't necessarily continue the sentence to say to meet your goals. That's the big difference. And that is very difficult because, again, it's how we've been trained The paradigms of leadership have been so ingrained in us that we're supposed to know, we're supposed to have the answers, we're paid the big bucks for a reason. What makes me sad, and I've heard this a lot in organizations when I hear it's above my pay grade. Yeah. So that is an old mindset around, I'm not smart enough to deal with that. That's not my problem to deal with because they don't pay me enough. So there was this perception that the higher the pay grade, the more problems you're supposed to solve. So that in and of itself perpetuates the belief that, oh my God, if I'm being paid X amount of dollars, I better have an answer. Otherwise, my career is at stake. So until systems start to shift, we keep perpetuating that belief. And I think we're at a time, I think we've hit a crisis of consciousness. There's a lot of people saying we have a crisis of leadership. And I am a huge believer of that. Our world is in disarray. Our global economies are are starting to fall apart in many ways. We're seeing it through things like Brexit and, and other issues that have hit the world. There's a crisis of leadership. And I think it's hitting our organizations, like it's hitting our political systems. And I think people are, they are waking up. People are saying this is not working. We can't keep perpetuating this style of power and hierarchy and leadership. It's gotten us nowhere. It's actually not just gotten us nowhere. It's created a big hole we're in right now. So organizations, I think by need or by desire, are going to have to change. Some will change because they want to, because they feel and believe it's, it's time. Others will be forced to by external factors, economies, globalization, rapid speed of change, and then they're going to have to be behind the eight ball, possibly, thinking about now, how do we make this change? And the problem is, they will make it sometimes without thinking about what mindsets and behaviors need to shift. 
People go quickly to things like buy new systems, digitize, start using AI, and they want to throw all these buzzwords in, but not realizing real critical change has to happen in mindset and behaviors and in how we show up. I think that's so prevalent right now with the country located south of us. Mm-hmm. I've been reading a book uh, of which Obama is a, a, you know, it's 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 amazing the difference, and we all see it, right? The difference between Obama and the person I will not name. <laughs> uh, the just the difference. One being such an inspiring individual, bringing hope. And guess what? He never talks about himself. It's always the greater purpose, whether it was education, whether it was um, health, whether that whole. And it's amazing. And I'm I'm more attuned to to it now. You know, every book that I read, I, I take something out of it. So right now, you know, with with clients, it's okay. As a leader, what's your role? Number one, you know, what 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 does your role? What, who do you want to be as a leader? And so often we hear this very mechanical, very performance-driven, and, you know, a conversation as asking a question. Well, presenting this data, this evaluation data, need to be, in, you know, these are things you're doing great. Wow, awesome. Here are some opportunities. How, in the bigger picture, are we going to work together towards that? Imagine if you're presenting results, oh, geez, it's awful, and the world's going to end tomorrow, and you know what? Uh, I'm going to try to fix it here at the top. It's not going to work. So involving people, yeah, you know what? We need to improve on certain things. Great. Let's work together to get to that. It's going to be much faster than the top down, in my opinion. You know what? Uh, I think there's a lot of studies that are coming out, and, and we're seeing this, is that you know, when it's a decision that comes from the top down, um, people have a hard time getting behind it. It's like another task and exercise. They're lost. Why are we doing this? Even when they explain it, I'm like, well, I wouldn't do it like that. Um, you know, it's, it becomes more of an effective plan when you say, hey, what do you think? Absolutely. Well, what are your thoughts on this, right? And, and you, sure enough, you, you can actually get it done on a timeline, maybe even sooner. It's, it's quite incredible when you, when you, cause it's all about value, right? Hey, I'm able to add value to this. I'm helping out the bigger picture of the company. I'm not just, you know, this one person that just punches a, a keyboard all day. It's, it's quite incredible. It has to be authentic. I mean, yeah. sometimes in a, a, in an environment where trust is not very high and all of a sudden you've got one of the top leaders walking around and going, oh my gosh, what's going on? Am I going to lose my job or whatever? It's not an overnight process. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if it is a trusting environment or you work towards, and now it's a trusting environment, the richness of that, of actually listening and being authentic, wow, what a great idea you have. And then walking away and actually something's going to be done about it versus, oh, thank you very much. Next. No, thank you very much. It's part of that journey, right? It's absolutely part of the journey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you guys just recently did a uh, Tomorrow's Workplace Today conference, which I was a part of, and it was absolutely incredible. It was your first year, um, and I think a lot of great data came from this. And this is really along, like, with the trust, what, is, what, what, what does it actually look like? Um, and the team dynamics, I think, was one thing that really came from a lot of the uh, uh, participants, where they say, we need to change on how we organize and how we work together. 
And so how important is it to really build a, a good team that isn't dysfunctional? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great book, yeah. right? I think that we all have as humans a need and a desire to connect. Mm-hmm. So intuitively and naturally, we want to help each other. We want to be on the same team. And yet organizations started to structure themselves in ways that didn't allow for that. They created structures that were de facto creating competition and silos, right? So again, when we talk about human-centric, we're not talking about things that aren't normal. Human beings want to connect. Human beings want to be with other people. They want to help people. It is not true that we're built to harm each other, to do uh, injustice to each other. So our organizations were built, though, to start creating behaviors that were unnatural Mm. for us, which is why you've seen huge disengagement. You've seen burnout. You've seen a rise in depression, a rise in anxiety, and people feeling disconnected from their souls. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we don't want to be dysfunctional. We don't want to necessarily fight with our colleagues. We don't want to compete for who's going to get the bigger bonus, but yet our systems were designed to create that. So I think if we let people design how they want to design, my true essence and belief is people will design for collaboration. I'm not saying that it's 100% true. Of course, there is no such thing. You're always going to have, you know, your outliers on both ends of any spectrum. But I think the mass majority of people want healthy, collaborative teams. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, can't wait to go in and have an argument with my colleague or to continue this conflict I've had with the guy I'm purchasing for the last three years. I really don't believe that. In my heart of hearts, nobody wakes up thinking that they want to go to work to piss anybody off or to get pissed off. So team dynamics, if we were to let people naturally self- design. I'm not saying we wouldn't have conflict, but then again, conflict in and of itself is not a bad thing. And it doesn't actually go against human nature. What we've done in organizations is used conflict as a way to create cleavage. Mm -hmm. Whereas conflict used productively is a great incumbent to trust. Because if I can trust you with conflict and we can get through conflict, it ups trust. So team dynamics, I think, unfortunately, Because of the way organizations have been set up, we've not set it up to be fruitful and effective. We've set it up to be dysfunctional. Yeah, and it's having that healthy type of a conflict, right? It's not about like, you know, screaming at the person. Like instead of saying hello, (laughs) you know? Yeah, conflict's normal. And I remember like working in some organizations where people are just saying, oh, this guy's a hard ass. I'm like, why? Why does he have to be like, you know, when I, and I, when I got to know the person, I asked him, so, so why you like that? He felt that was the role he had to play. Right. You know, and it's just weird. And, and thinking back at it now as we're having this conversation, I was like, how dysfunctional or how like that delusion for him to, to kind of have that, like, well, this is what I, uh, what is, what is my station in life while I'm here? While I'm here. And that's yeah. like, and, and it's also him telling me, this is not who I am on the outside, but this is how I have to be here. Can you imagine that that's the role you come in? Right. Then you get sick. Yeah. 
it, it's just incredible. But it, it's like to your point, as we're growing into these bigger organizations, even small ones, it's like we feel like, well, if we don't keep up, then we're going to be left behind, right? You know what? Conflict is not a bad word. And mm -hmm. if you, you uh, alluded to the five dysfunctions of a team by mm -hmm. Pat Lencioni. And if you read through that book, it's a really interesting read because conflict and it's a story, right? They're at a retreat and you've mm -hmm. got the executive team around the table. So the president says something. So you're all in agreement, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. But then the conversation at the water cooler is not. So here in this instance, the conflict is having that courage because there's trust, having the courage to say, you know what, Mr. President, not totally sure I'm in agreement with you. And explaining why. Because if we go down that route, there is this type of risk or that type of risk. So if, if you as a leader choose to not voice that, who's responsible when it goes awry? Mm -hmm. Who's responsible when that product doesn't work or, or, or what, whatever the, the situation may be? So conflict is actually good. And it's having that cur courage to say, to anyone to say, hmm, can, you know, I have a few clarifying questions even. I don't understand what you're saying. Hmm, did you think about this? Did you think about that? So it's not that you're putting the person down. It's not that you're putting their ideas down. You're enhancing the conversation. Wow, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that aspect. Wow. Thank you very much. You know, you bring up a very important point when we're, when people need to be discussing about conflict, it's really important and mindful to use certain terms where you're not deliberately attaching the issue to the person, but to the artifact that is of the dysfunction, right? Because, because for a lot of times, you know, we may not think about it up front, but it plays on people's minds. Mm. On like, you, no, no, it's not, it's not the person, it's the project. Something's mm. not right yeah. on the project. And yeah. we see it all the time, especially, I know as I grew up in, it, it, with my leadership uh, journey, I've had that a lot of times like, well, you're the leader, so it's your fault. Well, yeah, I'm going to own it because it's my leadership uh, that I need to kind of make sure it happens. But at the end of the day, there are issues with the project. It, could you help me with what's happening here? Right. And it's very, very strange on how people use terms in different roles and responsibilities. And I've seen the same person talk to his kid where the kid had an issue and didn't blame the kid for the bike being broken. Right. And why he fell off the bike type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's I love you. It's your behavior right now. I'm not too enamored with, right? Exactly. It's not you as the person, but this. So this you can work on. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an important message. I mean, it's a great point that you make. So you know what? I know I use the word accountability, and apparently that gets people um, very uh, nervous a lot of times, which mm -hmm. I think is a, 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 an interesting ter uh, thing that occurs. Yeah. But, you know, accountability is so important when we're looking at team dynamics, you know, making sure if we're talking about projects, and we're having a roundtable meeting. Why aren't we able to say, so, so where are you on the project? Why aren't you getting it done? Mm -hmm. You know, what can mm -hmm. be done? Who around the table can help you out? And that comes from the trust. And yeah, see, how do you define accountability? Because in some organizations, it equates whose head will roll. You see, and I don't look so, at it like that. But unfortunately, that's how it's yeah. been brought up in organizations. So if you're accountable, that means whose head will roll should this thing not work. That is a very scary type of accountability. If I flip it and say you're accountable in the sense of I trust you, I know you're capable, I know you will 
find the resources as needed because you're very resourceful, you're very creative. It's a very different invitation to accountability. It's like, I trust you with this. I believe that you can do this and I know you can do this versus if this doesn't work, hmm. I'm blaming you. Right. So that's my take on why accountability has been one of those words that people run away from because unfortunately, it hasn't been a privilege to be accountable for something. It has been a sword to fall on. So who and why would you take that on? Hmm. Right? So think of it. If I say you're accountable because, wow, I entrust you with this. I think this is your new stretch assignment. You are wanting to do this. You're capable of this. And I've got your back if it doesn't work. It's a very different message than this is your sword to land on. So how does somebody really, they're trying to build up a, a great team and they want to incorporate that. Mm -hmm. What would be the term if someone wants to put that down and make that into like a word? I don't think it's the word that's scary because mm -hmm. you can... It's a context that's it's, been brought it's, up, right? You know, they say a leopard can change their spots, but it's still a leopard. Mm -hmm. So if you want to call it something else, but you still mean fall on your sword, well, then you haven't changed anything. I don't care about words if the meaning behind the word is, is still the same. So it's, again, about the culture. What are we building as a culture? That's where the real conversation has to emit and evolve from. Mm -hmm. If we value responsibility, for example, okay, which might be another word for accountability, what does that mean here? How do we define that here at company or organization X? What's the behavior behind responsibility or accountability? Is it that... We believe that if you say you'll do something, you will actually do it. Then that becomes a self-ownership thing too. And if I'm proud to be here and I want to have everyone's backs, I need to hold up my end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. So that's the conversation that needs to happen before what word you're going to attach to it, whether it's accountability, responsibility, metrics, I don't care what you call it. What does it mean and why? And how are we going to behave when things go south? Because projects always will, deliverables always, there's always something that's going to go wrong. And people will shy away from your word if they see that the second it doesn't work well, they're going to get in trouble. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's a great way of, uh, of framing it. When we're looking at it from the cultural point of view, is that something that cultures really want to bring on? We all read books and we all can see that it happens. And we've had discussions outside of this conversation about just reading something isn't the same of actually putting it as being a practitioner. You know, so so what do people really try to attain to? Because we're talking about buzzwords mm -hmm. that people like because it sounds nice and it's attractive. It's a marketing tool that you can put up online. But really when you get into it, as we were discussing before, where is it? Right? Where is the openness? Where is the transparency? Where Where is the humility? Where is it being patient? And persistent when it's like, where are you? Well, I'm still, I'm being patient. I'm, but I'm also being persistent. Have you not seen I call the guy five times? Right. You know, there's also that, you know, oftentimes we get called for, um, oh, can you come in and, and do a training for our leaders? Mm -hmm. And we're not a training company for, for one. So we ask questions, we meet with them. But I mean, we're very clear on we don't come in and in one day you're going to have a, a great leadership team. That's not going to happen. So the ask is come and train our folks because maybe they're not there yet. 
Maybe they need to be developed to be better leaders, let's call it that. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we do the whole discovery piece. And 99% of the time, it's not only a leadership thing. It's what's the culture? Uh, If the culture is that this is the type of leader you are, you can have the best development program Mm -hmm. come in. And is it going to change? You can't just come in and, and we've done that where we've done an amazing job at developing over time, over six months, the leadership team and the even the uh, the management team. And oh, that's great. And then you get to the owner and you hit the brick wall because that's not going to change. So if the culture is not going is is not going to change and not going to be different, uh, unfortunately, you can, you know, it's just a sad thing to see. Come in and 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 fix my my folks. Yeah, because it's work. not me, right? It's, it's not right. me, it's right? Not me. It's got to be everybody else. Because look at what I've done so far. So right? that's really, you know, it, it it's a danger of. It's great that personally you're going to learn new things, but to what end? So we always go. What does it look like to work here? What does that leader look like to work at in this company? And until we define that, mm-hmm. and not just one person defining it, unless that is defined, we don't usually, or we try, you know, moving forward not to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll help you. If that's not clear, if the culture is not willing for whatever reason, the whole system's not willing to change, but you want to change the leaders. That's, it, it can be very frustrating to the people going through for, you know, just as an example, a leadership development program. You know, it brings up a great point. And, and I know that recently a lot of companies have started to subscribing about training and, oh, well, he's been trained on this, so he's good to go. Like, it's like an Excel suite thing that you do once. You take a couple of tests and you're fine. Um, I know that Henry Mitzberg, and Henry, if you didn't say this, I'm sorry, but, you know, he was talking about MBA programs and how there is a... (laughs) anti-MBA. He, you know, he was talking Mm -hmm. about, and there's actually been MBA programs built around some of his studies, which I find is even more comical. But he was uh, talking about, you know, the MBA programs have value for people who are trying to get to a certain station. But beyond that, if you're not putting into a daily practice you're not really taking away everything you need to do. And we see this in engineering. I know when I, when I went to school, if it wasn't for the lab work that I had to do, it's just theory. It's just, it's just things I have to memorize for a test at the end of the semester. So to your point, there's a, a big, um, this raising of consciousness is happening even in academia as to what are we teaching? And from a very early age, from elementary school, what are the skills and attitudes that we actually need to develop for the future leader? And everything is proving and showing evidence that it's not the tactical skills. It is more and more what we're calling the soft skills, the capacity for emotional um, insight, for purpose, for, you know, this whole notion of understanding other humans, for communication, for connection. Those are the skills and attitudes that are going to be in that next kind of revolution, if you will. MBA programs have to also get on the mark because to continue to teach just to the technical side of business is really being blind, in my estimate. Organizations have to evolve. 
They must. There's no if, ands, or buts. And if MBA programs continue to perpetuate the old style of leadership, we're going to have a clash. So we're going to continue to develop curriculums that are based on old paradigms, which, you know, if you listen or read Mintzberg, he is a very big proponent of it's not working. Mm-hmm. Right? These are not the systems that are developing next generation leaders. So I think we have to do a lot of reflecting on the school systems. Yeah, I completely agree on that one. You know what, even when we're looking at, uh, you know, as we're talking about leadership and, and there's about dynamics and how do you become competitive, you know, we seem to always forget about, um, you know, how are we developing the organization and how are we developing uh, the product line, right? There's so many times I get people telling me, I have the greatest ideas in technology. I'm like, okay, great. Um, and they think that because you have the greatest idea, they're going to take off. You're right. And I tell them, I said, listen, the technology doesn't make your business great. It makes you help you go faster. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. it's what's around mm-hmm. your tech that's going to build it. And a lot of people forget that. And there's a lot of people who quit their jobs and become CEOs and they do a, they have a great product. Sure. They're just a shitty person. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because, you know, I have to tell them, you know, you're really great. You should just be the CTO, not the CEO or a COO because you're yeah. just horrible with people. And it's hard to tell people that, but they're just bad with people. Well, it's, yeah. And it's, um, and, and it, but they have a great idea. They have a great project, but there's so many great ideas that die. That die. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And I see a lot of people, they say, well, I'm just going to go do an MBA program. That's going to fix all my problems. Right. Or uh, or they're going to do a retreat for a weekend and then they come back. So that brings up a really good point, because uh, I know that uh, and a couple of I think about a month or two ago, we did a disk uh, analysis with a couple of people. And then I think at the uh, tomorrow's workplace today, there was another type of assessment that was done on values. Yeah, that's it. And I and, you know, from my takeaway from both of them, both on how much I learned about myself, um, which was, which when I first read, I'm like, no, that's not me. Then you self-reflect like, yeah, okay, I can see <laughs> that's me. But the, it was the takeaway from people saying, well, I don't have this value or I don't have this. Does that mean I can't be a leader? Mm. Do you guys get that a lot? Absolutely. I mean, if, if you talk about, and Carolyn can talk about the values piece, but on the, on the disc. So it's really interesting because that self-awareness we were talking about at the beginning, it's very important. And even though, you know, we do an assessment and we do a debrief of this assessment, the person giving this debrief shouldn't be saying, well, you're like this, right? People who have a high D uh, tend to be, you know, here are the characteristics. Does this resonate with you? Mm-hmm. Because who am I to tell you who you are? Even though, you know what, probably I might be right. But you know what, that's not what's important. What's important is that you see, hmm, maybe it is me, maybe it's not. But upon reflection, you know what? Yeah. And what's the impact you have on people? Mm -hmm. Because too much of a good thing, you could be destroying other people. So assessments are good, but it's a, a tool is a tool. We always say that a tool is a tool. But if you use it to truly understand yourself better, understand others, and then, okay, how do I now need to be flexible to be able to communicate to the other person. I mean, really, if you come out of it with that, uh, that self-awareness piece on your journey of being more self-aware as a leader, I think that's a great journey. But again, 
oh, somebody said I'm like this. I don't believe it. Well, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you don't believe it, then go and, and, and find out more right. about yourself. You know what's really interesting about uh, before we go into the values part was I remember, and when I showed you my assessment, and he said, oh, you're, uh, you have the bitch uh, oh. <laughs> profile. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it, what was really interesting about that was even looking at the, the insecurities uh, that people have or the fears. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know what? I think that was one of the things that uh, really helped me out. Because I was trying to figure out, so why do I act like Mm -hmm. that? Or why am I always shying away from something? Mm -hmm. And to really see that and really trying to say, well, let me just do this as a test, right? Let me just evaluate. Am I really uh, too much of a people pleaser? And sure enough, yeah, there are a lot of times where I'm like, I go out of the way to to people please. And I put that down as a shadow of, well, I'm helping them out because I'm making them happy, right? And so it's interesting on how we can go from one end of a spectrum to the other. And, and I think that these assessments, I tell, like what you said, I tell a lot of people, take it, you know, look at it introspectively. doesn't mean this is actually you, but it can kind of give you like a barometer of, do you know what? This mm. is probably pretty close. You know what? There's the good, the bad, and the ugly for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. And if you're aware of it and you know that sometimes you have a negative impact on people, be aware of it. And then maybe right. you don't do a... Or say something to that effect because of the impact. Not to not to say that you're not going to be truthful mm-hmm. and you're not going to be authentic. But there are times where, am I going to add value to the conversation by demeaning the person or by whatever? So again, a tool is a tool. But if it helps, um, you know, it's it's who you are. Use those strengths. Yeah. Why would you be something? Sometimes we, you know, we do these debriefs or, or, or sessions, the workshops. <gasps> well, I don't want to be like that. I want to be like this one. This right. one's the one yeah. I want to be. Yeah. That's the one. That's a leader profile. There is no one leader profile. Mm-hmm. Use your strengths to the maximum. And if you're doing that, then you're your best self. You do what's really interesting. Like when I'm hearing people talk about their sc- uh, like what they have and they're comparing, which I mm-hmm. find is really weird especially when we were looking at the values yeah. at the event, people are like, well, I don't have that. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, but you're, are you comparing yourself to me? Because yeah. don't. Uh, I'm in a very different place right. in, in where I'm at than you are. And just because I have these doesn't mean that's the right answer either, no. right? It, that doesn't mean anything. And people look at it like, like it's almost like a psychology spectrum thing. Like, oh, am I a psychopath? <laughs> a sociopath? <laughs> it's like, you know, like, the, like they're almost trying to get away from that and being like, nor- and, and they're looking yeah. at if it's normal or not normal. So as humans, we seek normalization. Mm-hmm. It's actually part of the human condition. We want to be considered part of something. Mm-hmm. We want to be, um, you know, feeling like we're not alone. So I kind of understand that, but I think we have to help people understand also that there's a uniqueness to each of us. Around the values issue, for example, if you look at Barrett and Barrett's work, And he talks about, you know, the seven levels of consciousness and what it means to be a fully conscious leader. In essence, he says, you have to be operating from all seven levels. It doesn't mean that your values all at that moment sit in all seven, but that you are mindful to be able to operate. So it's not that because you are only in four, five, six, and seven that you're a great leader, because if you go back to base values like self-care, or safety, or health. If I start to neglect those things, 
And even if I'm operating from higher level so-called values, which are now more about society and transformation and, and, and communal good, but yet I don't take care of myself, well, I can't really be a good leader because now what am I signaling to people? That you should only care for others? A little bit like maybe the people pleasing. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful to your point of any value can become detrimental if it's not balanced with something else that also helps us be our best selves. So there is no one profile. Values evolve. Values are shifting based on who you are at that time in your life and what you need. There was a time when really um, there was a, a big belief in what they call the trait theory of leadership. And it was believed that you needed to have certain traits to be a good leader. I think we've really moved away from that. And it's, it's a lot more behavioral mm -hmm. and not trait-based. So behaviorally speaking, we can evolve our behaviors. We can shift to exhibit certain things that aren't necessarily innate. So there's been a big debate over the years, are leaders born or are they made, right? My true essence and belief is they're made. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're just born and that's what it is and, and too bad if you didn't get it. No, because leadership, in my estimate, is a set of behaviors. And those behaviors can be taught. They can be learned if someone wants to learn them and evolve into them. It doesn't mean that we all have to have same characteristics necessarily or that we have to have same personality profiles or that we have to have same values but we knew, do need to have a certain care in how we behave and how we show up. So is there one profile? Absolutely not. But there were a lot of myths that were perpetuated. For a very long time, we believe only extroverts could be great leaders. You know, it, 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 you brought up a couple of great points. Uh, I've actually had people ask me the same question. Are, are leaders born or are they made? And I, and I, my only response is, well, I think leaders are just as born as engineers, right? You, nobody's born as an engineer. Nobody comes out of the womb with, you know, a compass and a straight ruler, <laughs> right? So, you know, it's like, okay, well, he's the engineer, so yeah. good, yeah. station set in life. But no, but it's, it, it's something that you're taught, and you're taught on how to think like an engineer. And it's very much the same way. You can be cultivated and groomed to be thinking right. like a leader. So. We also want to not take away from people that we do have inherent strengths, right? We are born with some natural talents, mm -hmm. which some others will never be able to cultivate. I am not very good musically. Now, you can argue that maybe if I train and train and train and train, I might be able to strum a few strings on the guitar, but chances are I'm not going to be some kind of uh, you know, maestro. Whereas other people are born maybe with a certain talent, which either can get nurtured or not, depending on a lot of conditions. So leadership is not different. Some people maybe are born with a penchant, for example, to want to be in front of a room. Mm -hmm. Others, not so much. It's harder for them and they have to develop that skill. But not all leaders lead from the front either. So that's an old mythology we have too, right? That leaders stand on the podium. No, a lot of leaders stand in the back of the room. So yeah, a lot of it's behavioral and can be developed if someone wants to develop it. We've had people say, I'm not interested in the leadership role. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I am um, one of one of my leadership heroes is a is a Colonel Plourd from the Black Watch. And one of the things that he uh, he hates, he has to talk. He hates it. He says, I'd much rather let my people shine mm-hmm. than let me shine. And he thinks there's something he has to stand up. The first thing he does, he, he likes to spend all his time talking about everybody else. And he thinks it's absolutely a horrifying thing that people start talking nice about him. You know, and I think that's very much like you're saying. Humility. You know yeah, you don't have to be the rock star CEO, which we see a lot of where it's like, yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to do this and it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. And then when he leaves or she leaves, there's other somebody just trying to replicate that energy or they end up just taking everybody with them. Right. And it's just a strange thing that I'm happy to see that you're you just discussed that, that there is that shift. There is a humility that needs to be brought into it. It's okay to be a, a servitude leader who sits on the back but really cares about what's happening internally with the people. Why isn't this person or this group uh, benchmarking to where they were uh, even like a week or even a couple weeks ago, right? How can I make things more efficient? You know, there's a word called vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's different than humility. But the vulnerability piece, I think, is also a, a very important component. As a leader, let's assume I've got a good leadership style And it's okay for me to say, you know what? I may not be the best person for this. Mm -hmm. It should be somebody else. Or, hmm, I don't know the answer. I'm not going to fudge my way through it. I don't know it. You know what? I'll go and get the answer for you. So being vulnerable, being out there that you're not the end-all, be-all. The impact that has on your people, on the people that you work with is, oh, disarming almost oh wow you know that whole oh the boss knows everything right so that piece just there does goes a long way in again along with humility maybe but it's it's a it's a quite an interesting thing and not easy to do for some individuals there's a proudness there's a fake it till you make it there's Mm -hmm. a i'm you know that fraud uh you know they're gonna find out that i'm I'm not a good leader, you know, so it's not easy Mm -hmm. to be out there. Uh, And it, it, and it takes, and it takes practice and it takes courage to be vulnerable. You know, one thing I said to, uh, to a team, you know, one of the, so in the services business that I started up was in, I'm a mechanical engineer. This was in embedded systems and embedded software, not the thing I wanted to do in my career when I left (laughs) school, but I built a career out of it and in a business. And one of the first questions Pratt Canada asked me is like, so how do you know you're going to be able to do this? And I said to them, he said, you know what? I, I don't know the answer, but we'll find out together. And I think that's the only honest way. If you don't know, it's like, well, do you know what? I think together between you and I, we'll be able to come up with a really right. great solution. You know, and there's so many times where, to your point, Anne, people are like, oh, I'm the boss. I have to know the answer because it's got to be quick, 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 quick. Versus being quick to questions versus answers. Again, though? The systems have been built to prevent us often. Mm -hmm. So if I say to a customer or to an employer or to my board, I don't know, I know that there is a risk. And until we start shifting paradigms across the board, it's hard for people to be vulnerable. Because if I know the real risk is I will lose my job, it's not easy for everyone to just lose their job. Mm -hmm. Right. Some people 
are so convicted by something that they don't care that that's the risk and others are weighing the fact that they have a family, they have bills, they have things, they have obligations. So at some level, you can't blame them because the system still works against you in being honest. So I am hoping, and this is my dream and my wish, that as we start to shift this level of consciousness, as we shift these barometers and these paradigms, people will not need to hide or to lie or to state things that they know not to be true because the consequence is too high. And I'm not saying that that makes it right to lie, but you can understand that someone who knows that they're the sole breadwinner, that they need to keep this job because, you know, there's a lot of things that keep us where we are too, fear and a lot of other factors. And it's not just easy to always jump ship for people. Again, it's not right, but it is what it is. And until the systems around us all evolve, we do perpetuate the need to not be authentic. Mm -hmm. Right? So... You know, I, I remember reading an article um, from Baines uh, uh, down from the U.S. And they, were talk and they were talking about a shift of an era from a stakeholder era into this new thing where it's not about uh, really serving the stakeholders and short term mm -hmm. uh, priorities, but looking at more longer term priorities, being able to um, really have something that's going to be carrying forward with a value system. Right. Do you really think that that is going to be the thing, like, because we're so short-term focused mm -hmm. at the moment, that looking at things more longer-term will alleviate some of these chronic well, issues? You, you would hope so, because absolutely, right now, if a leader is always measured by a short-term result, what's their focus? Mm -hmm. A short-term outcome. And when, you know, I've heard this conversation too, where leaders who try to push a longer-term view get kicked back down. Mm -hmm. Why? especially when they're public companies, because they have to answer to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And I, again, as shareholders, whatever shares we may hold in companies, when we change our discourse and ask for different results, that'll start shifting the paradigm. But if a shareholder is constantly pushing on the organization saying, make me money, make me money, and I want my money in three months, then again, it's a systemic problem. You can't fix a system by just pulling on one string. Many strings have to act all at once. And when the analysts get on calls and only ask about short-term results, then again, it perpetuates. So there is a big consciousness we're seeing in terms of corporate social responsibility, where people are starting to talk about triple bottom lines, people profit planet. It's starting to permeate the conversation. It's far from prevalent. It'll come, though, if enough of us start to ask for those results. There's a big movement around conscious investing. Where are you putting your money? Conscious consumerism. Where are you spending your money? Mm -hmm. We have choices to make. And if we continue to perpetuate what was, what is, we'll continue to behave. So we all have to change what we ask for, what benchmarks we're looking for, and to ask for things more long-term and not just seek that short-term gratification. A lot of us, unfortunately, are still wired to want it now. Well, that's it. You know, and, and, and something I'm seeing a lot of companies struggle with and uh, is really about uh, cross-functional training so they can rapidly deploy people mm -hmm. and then call back when we need to. And, and I know that you did recruiting. I was in the services industry, and this is very inherent in terms of 
well, I got to make sure this person's able to do this and this. So this way I can make sure that there's a funding stream for this one individual and I don't let them go. And I'm noticing a lot of companies are looking at, well, I don't want to lay off people because that was the thing. Well, I need to lay off my uh, half my accounting team instead of looking at, well, can my accounting team do something in procurement? Right. And I think this is something that other that they're looking at, too. And I think it's part about valuing their employees. It's not just about, well, this is your job. Stay here for 30 years. I'll see you, I'll see you with the gold watch. Which is more, it, it, it's rarer and rare, right? Mm-hmm. So how often do you see companies, oh, okay, that's a cycle. Okay, now we're going to let go of 5% of our, of our um, human, well, what's the word? Oh, well, human capital? Force? Human ca- workforce, thank yeah. you. <laughs> workforce. Because... Oh, for our shareholders, we have to show specific numbers. Mm -hmm. And then three months later, we need to hire them all back. And there's a company, many in Montreal that do that. Yep. You know, very large companies. Oh, we need to. And they come back. And and it's just such a cycle of, oh, we're in, we're out, we're in, we're out. Well, what do you think that does to the individual, to the teams, to the organization? At one point, you go... Do I want to continue doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, because somewhere along the line, there's a, a shareholder that wants short-term gain, and showing numbers that are are, re, are they really true numbers? And that's that. Again, to Carolyn's point, a lot of things have to change before that will ever change. Right, and I, and I know a lot of people when they hear about these layoffs that happen at these big corporations that we're all knowing and thinking about. <laughs> Um, and people who are listening can go Google. <laughs> um, but, but really, it, it's true. Everybody's like, well, you know what? They're going to get a, a three-month vacation, and this is wonderful for them, and they should be able to be called back. But Carolyn, to like your point, right, there's a lot of people, you know, that their job is their reflection of them. And for them, not finding work or able to find work or the instability is, is like the biggest fear that they could ever have. Like my wife who works at the hospital, she, she loves the stability of it, right? She absolutely loves that as a, a, as a paramount. Me, I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, my skin itches, <laughs> right? But she looks at what I do and being an entrepreneur and says, I don't understand how you do it. And I said, well, you're along the ride with me, so. Uh-huh. <laughs> you so know? you're kind of doing it too. <laughs> yeah, I know. so you're not like at an arm's length here. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're pretty much on the same roller coaster <laughs> ride. I'm just a driver. <laughs> I might want to take it off the rail. Yeah. But no, it's, it's funny on how, you know, we all think like, well, he's taken care of or she's taken care of because I'm giving them a severance. But that runs out and it plays such a toll on people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, yeah, it's nice. Again, if you were a human-centric organization, not to say you would never lay people off or you would never have to make those kinds of decisions, but again, things would be done with a different purview, with a different perspective. You'd be looking at how can we make this as harmless as possible? How can we create structures around this to help people? And I know people will argue, oh, yes, but we give outplacement service or we give. And and that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. But again, if you walked someone to the door and didn't allow them to gather their things like they were a criminal and then offer them outplacement service, Mm -hmm. really? You're a hypocrite. There is nothing human in what you have done. And offering someone a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound is not considered a human-centric act, right? So 
we don't suggest that it'll never happen that people will get laid off or that human-centric organizations will never do anything wrong. But again, things will be done with much more consciousness, with much more care than what we see being done, like you say, just it's a number, here's your pink slip, um, without knowing that this has a, a, an impact. Right, I think it would be a lot more, if I could just play back what I heard, is also let's uh, let's what else can we really do have we really exhausted all of the options and this is the absolute last option Absolutely. that we have right Absolutely. it's uh it's once again could we not cross-functionally train these people because their skill sets are great on this side and i and there's a need right there's a deficiency in procurement so let's shift people over yeah we're not going to save everybody's job no but if but i can save five percent then that's wonderful right yeah. and i and i agree that's that, that that's so important yeah. to how people even how they look at the how company. How they look at it, absolutely. You know, yeah. when I was first hiring people, the one thing, I don't know why I said this, but I'm happy I did because uh, it makes me sound smart, I think, a little. <laughs> but it, no, I used to tell people as much as I'm interviewing them, they should be interviewing the company and do my values reflect yours. Because at the end of the day, when you're going to carry around that name on your CV, that's a reflection of what you decide to do. Right. I would take it one step further and I counsel people to do this uh it's one thing to go to the interviews and someone's telling you what it's like there and maybe you've done some research and you're you're getting a picture of there is nothing better than being there so before you say yes to the offer um, call it a job preview, call it what you want to call it. It's not just sitting in the reception area and see how things are, 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 are being done. Go sit in the team that you would be working with. And as an observer, maybe you'll ask a few questions, but find out a little bit of, is this the culture that they say they have mm -hmm. that interests me? So you're sitting there going, yeah, and they've, they'll forget about you after a while. They'll continue doing their daily things. And then you'll get a good picture. It's not three days. Maybe it's half a day. You'll get a good picture of, ah, oh, that's how it's like here. Right. And so then you can make a much more informed decision. And you can go back to the person who gave you the offer. Listen, I'm seeing this. And can you tell me more about that? If, if you want to, right? If that's something that's of interest because you, you do like the company and you would like to accept the offer. But if you're seeing stuff like people screaming at each other, it's much more about the numbers than the people. And maybe with your value system, you're much more of the human-centric environment. That's what you want. Guess what? You say yes because, yes, you have obligations. Three months from now, you're looking for another job. So you're... Mm -hmm. you, you're wasting your precious time, your stress level, et cetera. Uh, they're no better off because they spent a lot of money and time hiring you. And now they've got to start all over again. So sometimes they'll be very happy in a way that you said no for the right reasons. Or you've said yes for the right reasons. You know, you brought up a really good point uh, about time. Time is such a precious thing. That, uh, that, we, that we never get back, right? And so we need to be conscious about how we spend it and, how, and even if someone's not working out, let them use their time somewhere else because that's another thing. If you, you just let them fail. See, that would assume a humanistic perspective because then what I'm wanting is what's best for you. And that goes back to servant leadership. Mm -hmm. 
The servant leader wants what's truly good for you and not necessarily because it's good for my company. I was reading, I don't know if you've heard of Gary Vee. Mm-hmm. So I was reading one of his um, blog posts recently, and you, know, you hear it on his podcast too. One of the things that Gary Vee is very concerned by is he wants to know what people want in their lives because he makes it his mission to help them get it, even though he says he knows that chances are they're going to go and they're going to pursue other dreams and they're going to maybe open a competing business, but that he really believes that that's his job. So if you tell me your ambition, your dream, your whatever is to to be this, then how can I help you get that? Knowing that it may never actually benefit my company, but it benefits you. That's a servant leader. Not many have the gumption to do that because if they can't tie it back to how it serves the company, they don't want it. I think that's well said. And I think we'll end it on that because it was, I don't know how we can really end on a higher point than that. So I'd like to thank you both, Anne and Carolyn uh, from The Pillars, for uh, joining me today for this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I would like to thank our guests featured in today's episode and to the team who worked tirelessly to bring this episode to you.